My name is Mason Kainrich. I am an historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on the Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong and he was eager to tell me what really happened. This episode... Well, this episode contains the event that caused the ignition. The outbreak of the infected within the city. Few people remember this, but the city did have procedures for containing an outbreak. Shortly after the division of the city, when fear of the dead was so terrifying as to override the natural paranoia between nations, they drew up a plan. In some ways, the city was well-placed to withstand an outbreak, whether started within the city or the undead came to it. It had strong, high walls that were in relatively good condition, the interior of the city was split into easily containable districts, and there remained a huge number of soldiers in the city and in the vicinity. Add to that several decades' worth of combat experience with the undead, and I would have said their chances of triumphing were good. The fact that their plans utterly failed has long been debated. I always held the view that it was a combination of Congress sucking out all the attention and resources, combined with fear of the undead being lessened after so long a time without confrontation. Orente tells a different story. In the last episode, we covered various statements from people Orente claimed to have interviewed who told of a brutal campaign to facilitate the spread of the undead, an undermining of the city's defenses, and carefully timed the release of zombies across the city. We shall see the start of the ignition itself, the fire that would utterly consume a city. Korriban was an amazing, captivating, corrupt, dirty, beautiful city. Its people were as diverse a population as existed in the world. There were cultures, traditions, religions, philosophies brought from all over. There were buildings in Korriban that no one anywhere else in the world would see their like. Bridges that spanned beautiful rivers, palaces of corrupt politicians that would make you weep for the beauty of them. Even the grimy or low-rent parts of the city where the poor were forced to go and crime was rampant, even those areas had their own type of beauty. It was wondrous and magnificent, and in a very short amount of time, the city was destroyed and the people eradicated. The usual caveat applies that the vast majority of this is simply what Orente has told me, mixed with articles from newspapers, diary extracts, and more, to give a little more context and information. Better-dressed soldiers were still at their posts within the palace, and my own formal attire must have convinced them I was one of the people they were meant to be protecting, and let me pass without question. It was easy to find the ballroom. The music was still playing. I'd expected to find the room in something approaching chaos as people ran for their lives, but the party was continuing as if nothing was happening. Admittedly, a few people did look nervous, and a few of the generals had their hands on their weapons, but otherwise nothing was happening. You could hear the occasional gunshot from outside, and even screams. I tried to find the three emperors, but the room was so full of people it was impossible to locate them, and eventually I ran to where a string quartet were providing the music and told them to stop. They were playing on a raised stage with an odd metal fence around them that I had to clamber over in an undignified manner. I then turned and announced to the room that they were all in terrible danger and they had to leave at once. No one reacted. On the way over, I'd thought about what I was going to say, and had decided to say something of the conspiracy, but leave out some of the more extraordinary parts. 
I told them that Devonier had planned to kill them all, and that he had done it with the help of Altassin. How else could you explain their absence from this event? At this there was a smattering of laughter, and then I saw him. Altassin, standing some twenty feet away from me, holding a glass of champagne and looking completely at ease, even chuckling to himself at the absurdity of the whole thing. The whole room was now looking at Altassin, some shouting out little jokes that caused more laughter. Eventually, Altassin approached me, opened the gate I had missed, and ascended to the stage, patting me on the back as if I was part of the joke. Then he turned to the crowd. Thank you, Ciro, thank you, he said. I'm glad we could all share this moment of laughter, as unfortunately, Mr. Orente is correct. You are all about to die. The laughter continued, but some people were beginning to look concerned as the gunshots were becoming more frequent, the screams seemingly nearer. At this moment, soldiers entered the room and began closing the doors and barring them from the inside. A soldier announced that there was a disturbance outside, and this was just a precaution. Altassin drew everyone's attention again to him. He raised his glass of champagne. A toast to a better world! The toast was repeated in a dozen languages, and I saw a few people drink from their glass. It took seconds for me to realize what had happened. A few of the guests, not many, but enough, began to cough. One collapsed, then another. In less than a minute, the first had turned. Infected. I turned back to Altassin, ready to beat him to death myself. But he wasn't there. At least Edward Altassin wasn't. That man was gone. In his place. A monster. Emperor Varance had pushed his way to the front, demanding to know what was going on, and the man that had been Altassin had his first target. He leapt from the stage onto the Emperor. Already the room was in chaos, some fighting, some running. I rushed over to try and help Varance, but as I neared him it was already too late. The Emperor lay in a pool of blood, Altassin taking bites out of his flesh. I stood and watched in horror as zombies and the uninfected fought to the death. Varance was already dead, but I saw the triumvirate of barest power killed. Chancellor Hadrius stood with a circle of his officers, swords drawn. It was an admirable moment of bravery and dedication to duty, but it didn't work. These weren't active soldiers, but retired heroes and commanders, men who hadn't lifted a sword in anger in years, maybe decades. Some undoubtedly were just rich men who liked the uniform and bought themselves a commission. They hacked and slashed at their enemy, fighting them as they would any opponent, which was a classic mistake, but an easy one to make. Running a zombie through barely slowed them down. Slashing it across the throat did not stop it. As men fell and the circle contracted further and further, and soon it wasn't a circle at all, and the last of them was set upon by the zombies. King Christoph, much to my amazement, was fighting with every ounce of strength he had, beating infected to death with his bare hands. Director Castlebright was the one who really made the mistake. I saw him run to the door, pull out the bar and fling it open, only to be enveloped by zombies from outside. Then my bizarre shield against all this shattered as something barreled into me and knocked me to the ground. The shock restored my abilities to act, even if it might have already been too late. The zombie was a young woman, surely no more than twenty, small and thin, but surprisingly strong. I pushed back against her as her snapping jaws grew ever closer. Mere inches from my face, 
the creature stopped as a spear was thrust into her back. The attacker drew a short sword and stabbed her through the back of the head. I looked up at the man who had saved me, Sellers Castor, King General of Moriaica. He pulled me to my feet. When this is over, we need to talk, was all he said. From the diary of Captain Chloe Vasker, April 19th. 1886. Orente had seemed convinced that the best thing to do was to warn the world leaders at the palace. Personally, I thought things were already moving too quickly. It was the people on the street who needed to be warned. For all of their horrors, zombies can be dealt with. After all, they have virtually no intelligence. We have led them into deep pits, dozens toppling in after one another had them walk into walls of fire. They'll do almost anything to get to people. If you have time to organize and prepare, they can be stopped. I didn't go to the soldiers. Barrist, Draven, or Mariaka, even if they weren't part of this insane conspiracy. They all had their own agendas, and none of them actually cared about protecting the people who lived in the city. I might have gone to the Hanerian revolutionaries... Their motives would be no less self-serving, but they might have seen the worth in defending the people. But they had left. Some part of their underground web of contacts alerting them to the coming danger. The only hope was the so-called Korriban nationalists. People who wanted to make Korriban and the surrounding territory its own small country. From what I knew, they were normally in the thrall of the Hanerians, but like I said... They were gone. And for the Nationalists, this was their home. I had already tried to convince them of the danger, and they hadn't believed me, only helping to rescue Orente so they could fight the Brotherhood. Trek's part of the movement was based in a poor area of Draven territory. The current system offered them nothing at best, and at worst actively persecuted them, so it was fertile recruiting ground. It was an area that saw few Draven soldiers, happy to let the place run itself, and only coming in force to arrest the most troublesome residents. I asked a few questions, and it wasn't long before I was escorted to Trek, his headquarters seemingly being an old factory. I was led under guard to Trek. He was bleeding from several wounds while someone helped patch him. I wasn't sure if Trek would be pleased to see me, after all, he had been injured saving Arente, but he was actually quite relieved to see I had made it out. I explained to Trek as simply and succinctly as I could what was going on and how the people of the city were in terrible and immediate danger. Trek shook his head and laughed, asking if I had truly gone crazy. Babbling about zombies while he had real enemies to fight. The Dravens, the Barris, the Mariakins, everyone who was keeping them down. I think Trek was about to launch into a revolutionary speech when someone ran breathlessly into the room, saying that zombies were eating people. For a moment, Trek looked confused, then worried. Then he seemed to compose himself and started giving orders. Extracts from the court-martial of Commander Sanford Granger formerly second-in-command on the Barrist warship Hindsight. I was the commanding officer on the bridge on the night of April 19th. It was expected to be a quiet night, 
but Captain Rowan was a man who made sure every man did his duty perfectly. Despite being a hugely powerful warship, hindsight saw very little action. Certainly, our primary concern was not enemy ships, but an army advancing on the city. In essence, we were a conveniently placed artillery division. Despite rumors put about by our own government, there was no standing order to fire on the city if it looked like the Draven Empire would seize control. Even if it was, I don't know of a single officer in the Navy who would follow that order. Some on board were pleased to be on a ship that was unlikely to be engaged in combat, affording them a quiet life and relative safety, whereas there were some of the crew who were looking for trouble. Captain Rowan is neither of these men. He's a proper officer, in that he is ready to do his duty, reminding the former that we were, in some sense, on the front line, and reining in the recklessness of the latter. I think the naval command had picked the right man for the job. There was always noise coming from the city, no matter what time, and even when the sound of gunshots came to us. Again, that happened. One of the crew brought word that several fires had been spotted in the city, quite big ones, and I gave the order to get Captain Rowan. I thought it was probably nothing, at worst some sort of civil disturbance, but the captain liked to know what was going on. Before Captain Rowan arrived, we received the message. I remember when I heard the sound of the tapping something was wrong. It was very rare to receive messages via the cable. I stood over the operator's shoulder as he checked the code book. He passed the slip of paper to me. Major outbreak in city. Impossible to contain. Drawbridge Gray situation. The information was very clear. There were zombies in the city. Lots of them. And we had strict orders in the event of this happening as part of the bookmark protocols. We were to open fire on the city. A mixture of conventional explosives and incendiary weapons and completely destroy it and the entire population. When the protocols were written, and every country in the world had agreed to abide by them, it made perfect sense. Rumor was, the original outbreak came from a village, a handful of people infected, and that led to millions dying. Extreme cautionary methods were not only prudent, but would save more lives in the long run. I can see that now, and I could see it then. Under my own authority, I ordered the operator to request confirmation, which he duly received. I should have ordered the firing teams to prep immediately, but I didn't. Instead, I gave the order to bring Hindsight in closer to the harbor, to prepare our assault craft and ready our marines. I wanted to see what was going on in the city. That was when Captain Rowan arrived and demanded to know what was going on. I will admit this. I considered lying to him. The operator didn't know what Drawbridge Gray meant. Instead, I showed him the piece of paper with the message on, and the captain belayed my order and instead gave the order to follow protocol. He then explained to the crew exactly what he was ordering and why. There was a horrible silence, and I broke it. I asked him not to do it. I said we were going to kill millions of people. Things happened very quickly. He relieved me of my position and ordered me to quarters. I can't remember if I drew my sidearm or if I just put my hand on it, but let me be clear. I was threatening Captain Rowan. I then declared that I was relieving Rowan of his command and ordered Lieutenant Warser to place the captain in the brig. I remember that no one moved. 
I looked at Worcester and began to repeat my order when someone hit me on the back of the head. I woke up in the brig. I don't deny any of the charges against me. I acted like a fool. And I'm only glad Captain Rowan and the crew had the courage to do what was needed. From the Diary of Gunnar Oxymoron, April 19th, 1886. I've been in the Navy for 14 years. I've been in battle, and when you're firing huge cannons, you can't be sure some poor bystander isn't going to get hit. And this wasn't the first time I fired on a civilian population. We blew up Garrettstone and fired a few shells at Yavaria. It was just to give them a fright, but people probably died. But this is different. Rumor is Ensign the Quisha shot himself after it happened, and Granger tried to shoot the captain. No one is in a right state of mind. Oreos has just been laughing. Laughed the whole time while he loaded the cannon and still laughing now, I think. One of the marines punched him, just trying to shut him up. It didn't work. The captain delivered the order himself, which was odd enough. He'd brought a few marines with him as well, but he didn't need them. We just did as we were told. When you've done something so many times, or drilled it anyway, you can lose yourself in the process, and I think we just tried to do that. But I would be the one who actually fired. Me and the other gunners, anyway. As my team did their job, I readied myself. I barely had to aim, and when ready, I pulled the lanyard. There was the usual boom, but it felt different. This time, people were going to die. We've been firing a couple of dud shells across the city to land in the other harbor every week, just to show we could. The first shells were conventional explosives, what we'd fire if this was a normal attack. The incendiary shells came next. Some clever scientists had made these to deal specifically with zombies, but... We all knew if we wanted to just kill people, it would work just as well. They say fire is the best thing for zombies. I fired 65 shells in the space of 104 minutes. I tried not to focus too much on the city itself, but I saw a place I had spent the past four years looking at every day where I had spent all my time off duty be ground into nothing. Two hours of heavy shelling that I know killed millions of people. It's too much. I stepped down from my position and looked at the city. All I could see was fire. Frankel said something about how we'd kill barristers, our countrymen, and he felt bad about that. Well, I think... Well, I think when you've killed that many people, it doesn't matter what country they were from. I think the captain had wanted to relieve the firing teams as soon as it was done, but there was too much to do. It's been 19 hours since we fired on the city. Before the firing had stopped, the captain had been organizing teams to start the quarantine. Before the firing had stopped, the captain had been organizing teams to start the quarantine. We were also worried that this was just the start of another war. Would the Drapens think we had simply gone mad and attack us? That didn't happen, but that was what we were ready for. Things just sort of went as they should. Soldiers arrived from the dozen or so armies scattered around the city, the captain explained. People handled it in different ways, but enough discipline was still there, and what remained of the city was surrounded. I wouldn't have thought it possible, but there were survivors. People who had found somewhere to hide and the zombies, the bombs, and the fire didn't kill. We took them into the quarantine area and they'll be there for a few weeks, probably. I'm just glad I didn't have to meet them, knowing what I had done to their home. Diary of Captain Chloe Vasker, April 19th, 1886. I was actually surprised by the amount of guns Trek had. Cheap Sturazzi rifles, mainly. Had the Draven authorities been aware of Trek's arsenal, which I imagined would be replicated in the Nationalists' other bases, 
they would have taken swift action to crush this fledgling rebellion. Whatever had been their original purpose, they were needed now to defend the city from the undead. I gave orders for barricades to be built, for people to be brought from their houses into communal areas that could be defended. I had more plans, but that was when the first of the screaming started. I left Trek in charge and followed the sound. I climbed over the nearest barricade and could see people running. I looked further back across the street and could see a form huddled over a body. I jumped down and drew my pistol. I took aim but kept getting closer. When I was only five or six feet away, my worst suspicions were confirmed. It was a zombie. The creature had just turned to look at me when I fired. The headless corpse slumped down on the ground. I looked at the victim. A girl, 14 maybe. She was still alive, but her wounds were too severe even without the infection. I knelt down beside her and held her hand, telling her everything would be okay. She died a few seconds later. I stood and reloaded my pistol, knowing I would have to make sure she didn't come back. Someone from the barricade shouted my name. I turned and they said zombies had been spotted near the palace. It really was happening. I turned back to the girl and was stunned to see she was sitting up. Reanimation could take hours. I wondered if I had made some kind of mistake. Was the girl still alive? I looked in her eyes and recognized the cold, distant, empty look. I again looked at her injuries. No, this girl was a zombie. I raised my pistol when the girl moved. I fired and missed as the girl galloped on all fours at me and leapt through the air. I managed to raise my arms to defend myself and half-pushed, half-batted the girl away, but her momentum knocked me off my feet. I looked round and again spotted the girl on all fours, and she rushed toward me. I had dropped my pistol in the fight, and instead of trying to find it, I braced myself. The girl again leapt at me, but this time I caught her and slammed her into the ground. Years in the Legion had made me strong, and the girl was thin and light. I pushed my forearm across her throat and underneath her jaw to keep her dangerous, snapping teeth away from me. The girl's hands clawed at my arms, but I ignored the scratches and held her firm. With my free arm, I reached into my coat pocket and found the weapon I was looking for. It was little more than a horizontal metal grip with a strong and very sharp steel spike. The Legion issues them to every recruit. I drove the spike into the girl's head repeatedly. On the fourth attack, she stopped moving. I pulled myself to my feet and found my pistol, reloaded it, and dropped it back in the holster. I had been fighting the undead for two decades, and I had never seen them move like that. She had been quick. Yes. She didn't move smoothly or well, but she was quick. There was noise all around me, and I looked to see a strange figure running at me with an unusual gait and fierce intensity. 
He was covered in blood and had a meat cleaver stuck in his shoulder. This time I didn't hesitate and brought him down. I reloaded as I ran to the barricade. As I started to climb, hands grabbed me and pulled me up. Fast or not, the zombies still seemed unable to climb. I picked up one of Trek's rifles and started firing. These are certainly vivid and unsettling descriptions of what happened in the city. There had been rumors at the time of zombies that could run, but these had generally been dismissed. Patchy accounts from traumatized survivors who probably couldn't have distinguished between the undead and the normal did not convince many. If we go back to what Devonier said to Orente about the conspiracy, there could be many different types of zombies, each with different characteristics, and this makes me want to not believe his story. The consequences of it being true are truly terrifying. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Kainrich was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbeam.com. See where Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Chloe Vasco was played by Caroline Minx. Caroline is the person behind the Scary Stories for Modern Minds podcast and is currently working on a new podcast called Seen and Not Heard. Find Caroline on Twitter at Saucy Minx. Commander Sanford Granger was played by Mark E. Modulus. Find Mark on Twitter at Mark E. Voice. Alke Simarin was played by Peter Nishimura. Find Peter on Twitter at Nishimura Peter or on YouTube search for Peter Nishimura to find their channel.